for welcoming back me from vacation. I appreciate that. I missed you guys. Actually, I was here for the one week. I've heard both sermons, watched them online. Many of you have told me uh, how well Ross and Sam did preaching. In fact, so many have told me that. You don't have to tell me that anymore. Um, I, I get it. Okay, so a woman wrote into Reader's Digest, after a meeting several days ago, I couldn't find my keys. I quickly gave myself a personal TSA pat-down. They weren't in my pockets, and suddenly I realized I must have left them in the car. Frantically, I headed for the parking lot. My husband has scolded me many times for leaving my keys in the car's ignition. He's afraid the car could be stolen. As I looked around the parking lot, I realized he was right. The parking lot was empty. I immediately called the police. I gave him my location, confessed I'd left the keys in the car. It had been stolen. And then I made the most difficult call of all to my husband. <clears throat> I left the keys in the car and it's been stolen. There was a moment of silence. and I thought maybe the call had been disconnected, but then I heard his voice. He said, are you kidding me? I dropped you off. <clears throat> so now it was my turn to be silent. And embarrassed, I said, well, can you come get me? He said, I will as soon as I convince this cop that I didn't steal your car. You know, keys, keys are important, aren't they? Keys are important. Have you ever left your key maybe with the cashier and you're walking out to the car and here comes the bag boy, hey, you left your keys, you won't get far without these. Sometimes when a celebrity or a dignitary visits a city, they give them the key to the city, which is that's largely symbolic, but it can be valuable. I read that years ago, Cher, the singer-actress, was given the key to the city of Adelaide, Australia. And then a few years after that, that key was sold on eBay for $95,000. A lot of Australians were upset with that, but she said it was a mix-up with an office worker. But $95,000, that's a pretty valuable key. But probably the most valuable key of all time was the key that was given by Jesus to Peter. Remember this in Matthew 16. Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So among other things, that's a statement of apostolic authority. Peter, unlike you and I, was an apostle of Jesus. So what he says goes. Right? And we're fond of noting that the first time Peter used the keys to the kingdom was during the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. Now, this would have been about 50 days after Jesus was crucified and resurrected during the Passover. Then the next feast, Jewish feast, is Pentecost. And according to Josephus, you had as many as a million Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem at that time. And Luke records in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that Peter stood up amongst all these Jewish visitors, and he preached the first gospel sermon. And in the sermon, he, he, talked, he cited some Old Testament prophecy and said Jesus had fulfilled those prophecies, proving that he was the Messiah, the Christ. And then he went on to say, and the tomb outside the city gates here is empty because Jesus resurrected from the grave after three days. And that also proved Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, in a supernatural way. And then Luke records, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what, what can we do? 
And that's when Peter answered in Acts chapter 2, this is recorded in verse 38. And he said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Insert key, unlock door, and open to the kingdom of heaven. And 3,000 responded and were baptized into Christ that day. I would call that the salvation key. And the salvation key is very important. But it's not, it's not the only thing. It's not the only key to the kingdom of heaven. It's the beginning. But there are many other things that Jesus taught Peter and the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that he wanted to pass on. And so Peter wrote two letters that are recorded in our Bibles, 1st and 2nd Peter. And the, yes, the new sermon series that we're starting today is a sermon series on Peter's first letter on 1st Peter. I'm calling it Keys to the Kingdom. And as we just look at the different subjects and topics that Peter addresses, I'm going to give each one of those a different name. It's the, the name of a key. For instance, today it's going to be the identity key. Now, Peter wrote this, we know it because he says so in the very first verse, and that's the way they did letters back then. They would identify the author and then identify the recipients. It was probably written around eighty sixty-four to 67. Historians believe that because of the many references to persecution in this letter. And the first formal persecution of the church by Rome was under Nero. When Rome burned, remember that historical fire, Rome burned, Nero blamed it on the Christians and initiated a persecution. Well, that was July eighty sixty four. So that's why one of the reasons historians believe that's around the date of the writing of 1 Peter. In fact, they also believe that Peter probably died in that wave of persecution shortly after he wrote those two letters. But that makes this about a 2,000-year-old letter written by a Middle Eastern Jewish fisherman. What does that have to do with me, a 21st century American man or woman? I'm glad you asked. As we begin this morning, we take this very first verse, and we're going to look at three of the identity markers of Peter to his original audience, the recipients of this letter. See if any of these resonate with you this morning. See if there's some relevance of this letter to our lives. First one, <clears throat> can we resonate as exiles? Can we resonate as exiles? First Peter 1.1, Peter writes, to the exiles. Now, the idea here is that an exile is not in his home country, is not in his homeland. Think of alien. I, some, some versions have alien, to the aliens. I, I decided not to use that because I didn't want everybody conjuring up pictures of E.T. or worse while I'm talking. But it's the same idea. Illegal aliens coming across the border. Exiles, not in their own homeland, not in their own country. There's something about this world that we live in that doesn't quite fit us because we were not made for this world. It's not our primary country, our homeland, at least not this world as it is now. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these people were strangers and exiles on earth. 1 Peter 2, 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh. So right off the bat, Peter is building a sort of an expectation that not everything's going to feel at place or in order or just right in this world. 
So yes, I was on vacation for two weeks. The first week of vacation, I was just up in Jacksonville. That's where Nana is. My mom still lives there in our, our home. And so I was visiting her and doing some things around the house. But I like to get out early in the mornings. Some of you like to get out in nature. That's how you get close with God. And being in North Florida, there's a lot of parks, a lot of trails to get out and explore that I'd never been to before. For instance, the Jacksonville Baldwin Rail Trail is a great bike path out there, about 14 miles from Jacksonville to Baldwin. Really nice. Lots of trails. I went to the Jacksonville Arboretum, and it's kind of like a botanical garden. And so uh, I do a Devo every morning. If you go to our, by the way, I don't know if you know this. If you go to our church Facebook page and like it, then you'll get notified of uh, a, a devotion that I tape and record. And it's up there every morning. It's about three minutes long. Call it Stevo's Devo. All right. So, and when I'm gone, I like to record on location. So I was at, this is the Jacksonville Arboretum, and I, I did a Devo from there, and it was very nice. Felt close to God, out in nature, was enjoying that. It's a beautiful setting. This is how I started off, but this next slide is how I ended up. Because as nice as it was, there's a fly in the ointment out there. At this time of year, the deer flies are really bad. Ever had an experience with deer flies? They are blood-sucking little demons. And I mean, they literally will draw blood. So I had to get this whole get up on me to kind of protect my face. But even then, they would bite right through my shirt. And I mentioned this uh, in my Devo, kind of use it as a metaphor or an analogy. Life can be this way. There's a lot of good, there are a lot of good things about life. There are a lot of things that we enjoy. A lot of nice things about being out in nature. But it seems like there's always some pesky problem that comes along or problems that kind of takes the edge off our happiness and our joy. We never quite have the perfect day. Or if you have had a perfect day, you had to work real hard to get it. But it always seems like there's a problem. Now, I look around, I see some of us are, are getting to be seasoned citizens and as we get there, right, things start going wrong with your body. And so there's that to contend with. There could be a relationship problem. Something's going on in our marriage. If we're not married, it could be a spouse or a parent, rather. It could be a sibling, a relationship issue. There may be a financial issue. There may be something that's broken that's got to be taken care of. Every day, you can have good in it. But at the same time, there's just this nagging problems like flies buzzing around our heads. And it's no wonder, one of the names for Satan in the Bible is Beelzebub, which literally means Lord of the what? Of the flies. Lord of the flies. He's constantly buzzing around, picking at us, biting at us, nagging us, and trying to steal our joy. So there's just that, that unsettled feeling in this world. But in addition to that, Peter probably had something more specific in mind, and that is an exile, the foreigner, never feels quite at home and often experiences hostility and opposition from the natives. And that has to do with the persecution, like the one that I mentioned, the persecution under Nero. And we say, well, that was then and this isn't now. Nobody's being burned alive in the gardens. Nobody's being crucified on wooden crosses today. Well, I'm not sure that's true. There are places in this world where it, there is that degree of violent, active uh, persecution of churches. But even like in Europe, they have 
hate crimes laws. There are, there are countries, including Canada, you cannot, you cannot read certain portions of the Scripture aloud in public without being arrested and prosecuted under a hate crime law. And usually these are just applied to Christian churches. We say, well, that's over there in Europe. Those people are bonkers over there. Well, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. But even here in America, for instance, in Portland, a week ago Saturday, did you see where the church was having their outdoor church service, prayer service? Not protesting anything, just an outdoor prayer service. And were attacked by Antifa, uh, maced, smoke grenades thrown in amongst them, including the children. The preacher was sprayed with bear spray. Police presence was there, but no intervention. So you've got these different levels of being an alien and an exile. And as it gets closer and closer, you know, maybe that can resonate with us. Maybe we can relate. Maybe Peter has something to say to us as exiles. And then also, secondly, the second word here is scattered. Scattered. Can we resonate with the idea of being scattered to the exiles of the dispersion, of the dispersion. Now, the word there, dispersion, is diaspora. It's, uh, you would have an image of seeds being scattered out. You know, spore is a seed, so you, kinda, you could hear that in the word diaspora. Uh, so they were scattered. Now, of course, the Jews had been scattered in their history. Peter, being a Jewish Christian, probably had this in mind. The Jews said, John chapter 7, verse 35, the Jews said, our people live scattered among the Greeks. This is an idea of being disconnected and uprooted. Now, just quickly, just a little bit of history of uh, the Old Testament, if you're familiar with this. There were 12 tribes that made up Israel, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes. When I was in Sunday school, we learned a little song, 12 men went to spy out Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good. Well, likewise, of the 12 tribes, 10 were bad and 2 were good. Now, the 10 tribes in the north made up the northern kingdom of Israel. They were pretty bad. And in the civil war, they had divided. And then the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, made up the southern kingdom of Judah and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you had that. And so eventually, the northern kingdom, these 10 tribes were attacked by Assyria, conquered, and carried off to captivity. Their entire population was deported to Assyria. And they were, assim they were totally assimilated. They were simply lost. They never came back. They never reassembled and they never returned. They lost their identity. It was like the Borg. They were assimilated into those populations. I don't watch much TV. I happened to be watching TV uh, this past Friday night with Tammy. We were watching Jeopardy. Was anybody here watching Jeopardy this past Friday night? Okay. Lori, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the answer to one of the questions on Jeopardy on Friday night was the 10 lost tribes of Israel. I don't remember the question, but the answer was the 10. So there you go. If you're ever on Jeopardy, you might win because you were in church today. And that's the answer. The 10 lost tribes, they were just lost, dispersed, scattered. Now, then about 100 years later, these two southern tribes, they got bad too. They were conquered by Babylon and carried off into captivity. But Unlike those 10 tribes, they maintained their identity and their faith, and God allowed them to return to the land of Israel about 70 years later. They rebuilt the wall and they rebuilt the temple. That's Nehemiah and Ezra, context of those books. In any case, the main idea here is that as scattered exiles, there's a feeling of being disconnected and uprooted. 
Now, you ever feel that disconnected and uprooted? Ever feel a sense of loneliness? I mean, they, they say that loneliness is at epidemic proportions now. The second leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide. There, there's a problem. There's a problem of connectedness and loneliness. Maybe some people can relate to what Job wrote or said, Job chapter 10. I loathe my very life. Why did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before anyone saw me. If only I'd never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Anybody ever feel that desperate? Maybe you haven't, but I know some people have. They have told me. There may be somebody watching right now or listening right now. That's how they feel. They're that desperate. But there's a continuum. And maybe we sometimes feel lonely and disconnected. My goodness, all the things that are... (laughs) Working to keep us from being connected these days, this virus continues to push people apart, making people afraid to make connections. Dr. Donald Joy has written a book called Bonding. It's a very good book. Here's what he writes. He says, these are the relationships that everybody should have in order to be psychologically, mentally, emotionally healthy. He said, picture your life as a four-sided trampoline. So, you know, remember in gym class, if you ever jumped on the trampoline, you had spotters so that you didn't fall off and break your neck. I said, so imagine that you've got four sets of spotters, one for each side of that trampoline. The first one, the category here is family, first degree relatives, parents, siblings, children. A second side up there would be second degree relatives. So that's your aunts, uncles, and cousins. A third side would be friends. Lifelong collection of friends and present confidants. And then on the fourth side, picture associates, people from work, clubs, and church. He says we should have four or five people in each category of relationship. And those relationships should have the following characteristics. Both of you have a high investment in the relationship. Frequent face-to-face contact, not just email, tweets, and Facebook. Two, your relationship has a strong emotional dimension. Three, each of you knows that in a serious emergency, the other would be there even at cost of time and money. And fourthly, your relationship is mutually reciprocal and symmetrical. Both persons give and receive without keeping score. Is your trampoline full? You have four or five people on each side in each one of those categories? I don't. A lot of people don't. And again, the older we get, we tend to outlive our first degree relatives and those lifelong friends. How long does it take to make a lifelong friend? It takes a lifetime. So some of those start passing away, and then we're mobile and moving around. And this is where the church sometimes can step up and help fill in some of the gaps on the sides of our trampoline. But I'm just saying, as Peter writes to his original audience as exiles, feeling like they don't quite fit, it's not quite the way it's supposed to be, and as scattered and disconnected, maybe losing some of those support systems that we all need. Maybe that resonates with us a little bit. And then thirdly, the, uh, the third word to look at here is we're identifying with this original audience is chosen. Is chosen. To the exiles of the dispersion who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So they're chosen. So he's writing to Christians. Now, the Jews had always been God's chosen people as the nation of Israel. But what happened here is there's a transition that takes place. Israel is transformed to the church. And now the church is spoken of as being God's chosen people. It's true of the church as a group. It's true of individual Christians. We've been chosen by God according to His foreknowledge. In His omniscience, that is, 
God foreknows those who will trust Him and He has chosen us to be a part of His family. Romans 8.29 For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So we're justified. We're sanctified. We're glorified. That's, we were singing a song this morning about becoming more like Jesus. That's what God is doing for us. He's chosen us for that. Feels good to be chosen. I mean, you remember on the playground when they're choosing up teams and if you weren't the captain, you had to wait here in the group. And I don't know if you've ever been the last one chosen. Doesn't feel that great. But Peter, when he's talking about this, he knows what it feels like to be chosen and how good it feels. In Luke chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles, starting with Simon, whom he named Peter. So here's this uncouth fisherman. You would think he'd be last in line. If chosen at all, he's first one chosen. He knows how good that feels. To the exiles and those who are scattered and those who are lonely, maybe feel disconnected. Let's remember this morning, God has chosen you. This is one of our core needs, to be desired, to be wanted, to be loved, and to be chosen. We seek to fulfill that sometimes in this life through marriage. Ultimately, the way we fulfill that core need is through God. He has desired us, He has loved us, and He has chosen us. Kent read that Galatians passage this morning. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. You see how Paul personalized the love of God right there? Who loved me. Let me affirm this morning that God loves you and has chosen you and me. A front page article in the Indianapolis Star concerned a 17-year-old girl who had just been adopted after 4,057 days in foster care in 36 different placements. That's over 11 years since she was removed from her very abusive biological parents at six years of age. Nearly 1,000 other kids in the system have been adopted while she waited. Her hopes have been raised again and again, only to be dashed in disappointment. And then while living in a group home, she met Mike and Patty at an adoption event. When they met again, she told them, when I got back to the group home, I was hoping you guys wanted me because I wanted you. I was hoping you wanted me. When she moved in with Mike and Patty on a trial basis, it was hard to believe it would be that it would last since she had been hurt so many times before. However, on November 16th, it became official. She was now their daughter, part of their family. And furthermore, she legally changed not just her last name, but also her first name because it had been given to her by her birth parents, whom she doesn't want to remember. She's a new person with a new name and a new family and a new home. She's been chosen. One of our praise choruses is Hillsong's, I Am Who You Say I Am. The words include the following. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Scarlett had said to Mike and Patty, I was hoping you guys wanted me because I wanted you. The incredibly good news of the gospel that we have to share with the world is we don't have to wonder whether God wants us. He wants us and has chosen us. Now, as we move into an observance of the Lord's Supper this morning, let me say this about exiles. Remember the two southern tribes maintained their identity and their faith 
while they were living in Babylon and later in Persia. One of the ways they did that was to create, come up with this idea of synagogues. That's where synagogues came into existence was during the exile. And wherever you had 10 Jewish families, they could form a synagogue and they would meet together on Saturday, the Sabbath. They would read scripture, they would pray, they would reinforce their values and their faith, and they would orient themselves. They always faced toward Jerusalem, where the temple was, the seat of God, and the center of their world. And one of the things that we do when we come together every week is we reinforce our identity here, and our faith, and our values, and our unity, and our oneness, and we reorient ourselves toward our heavenly home and God, the center of our world. We do that every week, and we do that right here, right now, by partaking of bread and juice and remembering what Jesus did for us in his death on the cross and his resurrection.